0: Hi everyone and welcome to this, the sixth episode of Story and Star Wars, our lecture on Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. I'm Alistair Stevens and I would like to begin this lecture by offering my apologies for the late arrival of this lecture in your podcast feeds. We had some technical troubles here in the studio, technical troubles compounded by other technical troubles, so I am recording this on Sunday afternoon instead of my usual Friday morning slot. So I apologize for the delay. I also apologise in advance for perhaps a little brevity in this week's lecture. I have a lot of material to get through and I have a limited recording window so I'm going to do the best I can to hit every point but we will certainly pick up some of the points that have been left behind and explore them during the live tweet on Tuesday night. And any other points that remain can be addressed in the Q&A that we'll hold in just a couple of weeks time. More on that at the end of the lecture. Attack of the Clones was released in May of 2002. Its budget was roughly the same as The Phantom Menace, $115 million, but ultimately it took 30% less than The Phantom Menace, $650 million. So still an enormously profitable film, but by no means the blockbuster runaway hit that The Phantom Menace was. The critical reception to Attack of the Clones was broadly consistent with the response to The Phantom Menace, though the movie's impact was much less impressive. And this is due, in part, I think, to being outperformed at the box office by The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, and the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. 2002, it turns out, pretty solid year for blockbuster hits. While it feels, as I discussed last week, as though the critical response to The Phantom Menace has softened over the years and numerous writers have urged us to reconsider our response to the film, it seems as though there's been much less of that kind of reappraisal for Attack of the Clones, despite the fact that this movie led directly into first The Clone Wars animated movie and then the series, which was very well received. There's some debate about how The Phantom Menace is ranked alongside the original trilogy, and the same is true for our final movie, Revenge of the Sith, more on that next week. But Attack of the Clones is almost unanimously considered the worst of the six movies. And that, I think, is undeniably true, from a certain point of view. From a different perspective, a more charitable perspective, perhaps, a more academic perspective, certainly, it might be argued that Attack of the Clones features some of the most mature and modern writing and narrative craft in the entire Star Wars series, though that too, is not an uncomplicated thing. We'll return to those thoughts in just a little while. For now, let's take a look at the three stories vying for space in this crowded movie, crowded despite being the longest of all the Star Wars movies at 142 minutes. On the one hand, we have what I would consider the A-plot, which is Obi-Wan's investigation into the Bounty Hunter attack on Padme, his journey to the Cloners of Kamino, and onward to Geonosis. The B-plot that unfolds alongside that A-plot is the developing romance between Anakin and Padme, which begins in the same place, then goes off on its own via Naboo, Tatooine, and then ultimately to Geonosis 2. The C-plot revolves around the Jedi Council and the coming war. This is the slow-burn story through the first two-thirds of the movie, which unites rather nicely with the other two strands in the final extended battle sequence on Geonosis. Rather than break down the movie chronologically, because we'll be bouncing from one storyline to the other and back again, I think it would behoove us to take a look at how each of these three stories works on its own terms, and then consider the movie as a whole. Before we get into the specifics of the plot, it's worth noting that we have all but abandoned the monomythic structure we've been talking about for the first four films in the series. That monomythic structure, which, as I argued last week, was realised most fully in The Phantom Menace. There are odd beats that echo and speak to the hero's journey throughout Attack of the Clones, and we'll touch on some of those as we break down the narrative, but at the most fundamental level, we are not following a quest-and-return structure. There's no traditional call to action, no traditional transition to the supernatural realm, no return or redemption nor boon gained. We'll talk about what that means for the story as a whole at the end of the lecture. We'll begin then with Obi-Wan's story because that is where the movie begins. We open on one of my favorite sequences in the film, and it is a sequence which perhaps coincidentally is also one of the most restrained. I'm talking, of course, about the descent of the Naboo starship through the atmosphere to the cloud-shrouded Art Deco excess that is Coruscant. This, more than any visual element we've had in the movies to date, feels like the Old Republic serials. This feels like a fantastical and exaggerated vision of New York in the 30s and the 40s overshadowed by war. Look to the design of the buildings, yes, obviously, but also to the visual design of the starship, so reminiscent of 20th century bombers flanked by fighters in flight. Look at the sweep through the mist, which reminds me of nothing so much as the end of Casablanca. It is a beautiful sequence, punctuated with some lovely environmental storytelling. Of course R2 would accompany Padme, for example. And the fiery exclamation point at the end of the sequence really gives us our introduction to the film. It's not a terribly Star Wars opening. This vision of Coruscant feels more like the movie Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, or the Bioshock video games. But in a story which often feels padded to excess, This opening feels swift and jagged and surprising and evocative. From there, we move into the Jedi Council's meeting with Palpatine and a great deal of foreboding about the Separatist movement, as well as the introduction of two major elements, the shrouding of the Force by the presence of the Dark Side and the question of a standing army. It is dense, certainly, though nothing compared to the impenetrable world-building at the beginning of The Phantom Menace. This is accessible and immediate and compelling by the time we're seven minutes into the film we have framed the central conflicts we've introduced the active influence of our antagonist and we have foreshadowed the turn that will carry us to the costly decisions our heroes will be forced to make all the way at the end of the movie for my money the opening seven minutes of attack of the clones rivals the opening seven minutes of any of the other star wars films it is a really confident and accomplished piece of narrative craft We're swiftly, thereafter, introduced to Obi-Wan and to our brand-new, grown-up Anakin. There was a little bit of confusion about this in the wake of our discussion of The Phantom Menace, particularly in the wake of the live tweet, so I thought it would help us to have some numbers here, particularly because it makes the central romance in Attack of the Clones a little less creepy. In The Phantom Menace, Anakin is canonically 9 years old, while Padme is 13 or 14, so the age difference is only 4 or 5 years, not the 8 or 9 year difference between Natalie Portman and Jake Lloyd in real life, or the 12 or even 15 year gap that some viewers thought. Attack of the Clones takes place 10 years after The Phantom Menace, so Anakin is now 19, and Senator Amidala, no longer teen Queen of Naboo, is 23 or 24. So the opening movement of the story takes us through the awkward introduction, the assault on Padme's life, the extended chase through the skies and streets of Coruscant, and for me, despite how stilted and flat the dialogue is in the introduction scene, this is where the movie first falters. It's easy to turn this entire lecture into a critique of Anakin's character. It's tempting to turn this entire lecture into a critique of Anakin's character. And while that wouldn't be fun for anyone, we do have to acknowledge that he's just terrible. He's entitled, he's whiny, he's impudent, he's creepy in his obsession with Padme. And none of that, I'm sad to say, is helped by the acting. While Natalie Portman is significantly better, I would say, than she was in The Phantom Menace, and Ewan McGregor continues to be a delight as Obi-Wan, Hayden Christensen is strikingly, abrasively, famously terrible. It is true, and a truth often observed, that George Lucas is not an actor's director. And as a result, the performances are often flattened and somewhat dead-eyed, but Anakin, well, Anakin stands apart. Suffice it to say, for now, I know he's awful. So back to the chase sequence. There are two problems here. The first is that just like the pod race, there's no way of gauging threat or of tracking conflict. The story has to assert things. He's getting away. This is a shortcut. I forgot you don't like flying. We're told what's happening because there is no way for us to see in this cluttered and crowded frame and through the lens of occasionally incoherent direction, what is going on. It's all tell, no show. And it lasts almost exactly 10 minutes, which is the same length as the pod race. But while the pod race was a structural part of the plot and anchored the midpoint, This is even less significant. The second problem with the chase is that it's overkill, narratively speaking. There is a price to be paid for the delivery of information to the audience. Here, 10 minutes is too high a price for the dart that leads Obi-Wan to Kamino. There's nothing actually wrong with the story or the escalating conflict, but the how is overwhelming. If the chase had been a minute, maybe even two, then the pacing of the film wouldn't have been irrevocably broken. But after the swift and precise opening movement, the pacing of the scene in Padme's quarters, and then the interminable chase sequence just ruin the sense of escalating tension. Worse still, this is a problem that's going to return later in the movie where the set piece sequences are simply too long and too incomprehensible for the audience to stay engaged. Please get in touch and let me know if you've had the same experience as I have had. I have watched Attack of the Clones with numerous different people, and everyone stays engaged for the first 10 minutes. Then by the time we hit the chase sequence, attention starts to drift. Let me know if that matches your experience of watching this movie. The Jedi Council then splits our story into the A-plot and B-plot we mentioned earlier. Anakin is dispatched to Naboo with Padme, while Obi-Wan investigates the Dart. This is the first hint of something new. The idea that Padme has to travel in disguise shifts the power balance. It makes the universe a larger, colder, and more dangerous place. This is also the point at which we get the second half of the Jedi storyline introduced. Their vision is shrouded by the dark side, but the prophecy tells them that Anakin will return balance. We can talk and speculate and argue about the exact nature of that balance and of the force itself, but for now let's be mindful of the story we're being told. The Jedi have, secretly, all but fallen from grace. Their power is not waning because they are less than they were before, but because the dark side is in ascendance. Desperate to stem the tide and return their order to greatness, they cling to the hope of the prophecy, unaware, ironically, that when it is made manifest, it will mean destruction. Very quietly, in the background of this story, the Jedi are making mistake after mistake. Blind to the consequence of their actions, holding fast to their own importance. Yoda decides that Anakin should watch over Padme, for example, and that she should leave for Naboo without once considering that his wisdom is imperfect, that his vision is shrouded. We'll see the realization of this plot in the next movie, of course, but it's interesting to watch, in the broadest terms, the decline of the existing social order, of this aristocratic order, in this, the fractured state that is the Republic particularly alongside the introduction of a standing army and the oncoming tide of war. And it's interesting too to watch the connections between Yoda and Windu and the other Jedi, and Anakin rather than Obi-Wan. Shortly after Yoda chastises Obi-Wan for arrogantly fearing for his padawan, Anakin tells Padme how important it is to set aside pride and embrace duty. Then almost in the same breath tells her how awesome he is compared to his master. Arrogance is, indeed, part of the blight affecting the Jedi Order, but in the text of the film, only Obi-Wan seems to be exempt from it. Two things before we move on. The first is that I firmly believe that the decline of the Jedi Order and the irony of Yoda's dismissal of Obi-Wan's concerns about Anakin as arrogance are completely deliberate. I don't think Lucas stumbled into this, and I don't think it's an inconsistency. I think we are being prompted to see the Jedi Order as being far less than heroic, far less accomplished and less unambiguously good than we might expect from a simple reading of the text. That's a perspective that's arguably compromised by the end of the film, where I think we strip out some of this interesting texture and grit for something more sleek and superheroic, but it's definitely there. It also, of course, ties to this idea of the decline of the aristocracy and the rise of the nation state. There is something almost Marxist about the rise of the clone army and certainly we're being led to see on the heels of the 19th century trade dispute as Roger Ebert described it last time. We're certainly being led to perceive the rise of nations here. We're moving into a more modern era. I should note too Though this is something I'll explore more fully during the live tweet on Tuesday evening, that Padme is fantastic in this film. She is active, she's capable, she's engaged, except with regard to her judgment for man. I'm hard pushed to think of a Padme moment in this movie that I don't adore. Such a step up from The Phantom Menace. So with our stories now separate with anakin and padme rushing off to naboo and with obi-wan investigating the dart we will push on to one of the most commonly derided scenes in the entire movie dex's diner it is nothing less than weird that star wars star wars of all stories should take such a hard left turn, that a series famed for its creativity, that introduced the Alien Bar Cantina setting that so many other movies tried to replicate without success, that this story should decide to replicate a throwback 1950s diner, complete with color scheme and droid waitresses and booths and neon signage, it is a baffling choice. It's the one moment in the entire trilogy that feels like a specific and unavoidable reference to Earth. And therefore, it's the scene which critics of the prequel trilogy point to most often as proof of Lucas's alleged creative bankruptcy. But here's the thing. While I completely acknowledge those criticisms, and I completely acknowledge those criticisms, and I don't think it's in general a good scene, I think it does give us a vital piece of textual information. It's not the reveal of the cloners of Kamino, though that is obviously the structural intent of the scene. Rather, this scene is teaching us how to view and how to understand Obi-Wan's side of this story. Let's frame it this way. Our hero is embroiled in a plot in which shadowy forces want to kill a prominent politician in order to advance their political agendas and for revenge. During the course of his investigation, our hero discovers that the people from whom he has been taking orders and to whom he has always been unquestioningly loyal are involved in a secret conspiracy. Everywhere he turns, he finds new secrets, new lies, and at the same time, his situation is becoming more and more precarious until, ultimately, he is captured by his enemy and offered a chance to switch sides, to embrace a new philosophy. He refuses, holding to his idealism, And is sentenced to death. He finally escapes, achieves some measure of victory, though he leaves the world a darker place than it was before. That is Obi-Wan's story through Attack of the Clones, but look at those beats, look at that structure. It has nothing in common with the earlier Star Wars stories. Rather, it mimics the structure, the tone, the cynicism, the paranoid atmosphere of a contemporary spy thriller the atmosphere of corruption and distrust are key. This feels like a modern Bond or Bourne movie, or better yet, a political thriller from the 1970s. It feels like The French Connection, or All the President's Man. And in that story, our hero absolutely visits his underworld contact to get information on the one clue that will cause the mystery to unspool. The scene in Dex's diner isn't a Star Wars scene. It's a Dirty Harry, French Connection, Mission Impossible kind of scene. And in that context, the specific reference makes sense. Now, that doesn't mean that it fits the movie any better than it did before. But it is key, I think, to understanding what's going on and how we're supposed to read the Obi-Wan story. From there, Obi-Wan visits the Jedi Temple and learns that Kamino has been erased from the official archive. A note of conspiracy and paranoia enters the story, Later, he discovers the truth of the Clone Army, the future Grand Army of the Republic, which was commissioned by Jedi Master Sifo Diaz, but kept secret. He meets with Jango Fett, he battles him, he ultimately follows him to Geonosis, where the Separatists are manufacturing their droid army. The rabbit hole just keeps getting deeper, right up until he is captured and questioned by Dooku, who still gives him the opportunity to switch sides because of the underlying philosophical conflict. Ultimately, Obi-Wan ends up in the arena with Anakin and Padme, and from there his story merges back into the war storyline, but I have to say, I really like Obi-Wan's story in this movie. It doesn't hurt that the decision to separate our main cast leaves McGregor unencumbered by Christensen, but it's still a charming performance no matter the context, and the narrative arc is both clear and compelling. I completely understand if it feels out of place in the movie. More on that later but it's a stronger, more confident, more sophisticated piece of narrative craft than we've seen so far in the prequel trilogy. I love seeing Obi-Wan struggle with the layers of conspiracy and of secrecy, as well as I think the genuinely great set-piece battles with Jango Fett. Kamino at least is excellent, and the asteroid field, while it isn't as great, has some of the best sound design in the entire trilogy. Ultimately, it leads us all the way from the first attempt on Padme's life to the declaration of war on the Separatist forces in an accomplished and a dynamic way. Much as we're encouraged to look at Obi-Wan's story through a different lens, we can make sense of Anakin and Padme's story best by understanding the references that it is making, what unspoken assumptions we should be understanding. The key to unlocking that story can be found in an early scene in the conversation where Anakin and Padme talk on the transport to Naboo. Attachment, we learn, is forbidden for Jedi. Compassion, which Anakin defines as unconditional love, more on that perhaps later, is central to the Jedi life. So really, when you think about it, Anakin's crush on Padme isn't at odds with his duty as a Jedi, it's the ultimate expression of that duty. Yeah, I don't buy it either, but it's important, it's vital, that Anakin does. Here we have a Jedi Knight, a term rarely used in the prequel trilogy, a man who embodies the ideals of compassion and of service. He's attracted, even though he ought not to be, to a woman of higher birth and considerable importance. He fell in love with her the moment that he first saw her, and that love has been undimmed by the decade that has passed. Padme obviously feels that attraction too, though she, less in touch with her feelings, has to be brought slowly to the same realization. They should not be together, they should not cross that line, but so pure and powerful is their love that they can't resist. They're swept up in it, though the consequences are sure to be dire, and we're supposed to believe that this is a good and wondrous thing. This is the story, then, of the knight and of the lady bound in a love that seems to cross piety and duty, but is instead the perfect form of those qualities, though it will not be realized without consequence. Anakin and Padme speak to Lancelot and Guinevere, this courtly, chivalric kind of love story. Anakin isn't being creepy and intrusive within the text's own understanding of itself. He is recognizing something pure and unconquerable between them. Padme is a little slower on the uptake, but no matter how wrong their relationship is, they have no choice. This is the reference that this story is making. And again, this isn't an excuse for the story's execution, which is imperfect at best and calamitous at worst, but... This is rather an acknowledgement of the story's conceptual roots. This is, in theory, a love for the ages. It doesn't obey the same rules or take the same structure as a modern romance. This isn't a meet-cute, an internal conflict, an escalating series of scenes, and then a resolution. It's something much more mythic. And that mythic quality, I think, accounts in part for the weird tonal disconnect between, for example, bare-shouldered making out by the fire sexual tension, and then rolling in the wildflower meadow innocence. It's a story that can't fully manifest itself because the reference that it is making, the archetype that it is following, can't be contained by a story of this size and shape. This isn't Arthurian legend. This is something else. So, Anakin and Padme take refuge on Naboo, talk a little about politics and the differences between democracy and dictatorship. Throughout this story, they fall in love, and those scenes are almost universally painful to watch, though, again, I do not put the blame for that at the feet of Natalie Portman. She manages to do wonderful things in some of these scenes, though not enough, sadly. Ultimately, Padme and Anakin go to Tatooine, then onward to Geonosis, where they are absorbed back into the war storyline. So we have, on the one hand, our tense, paranoid conspiracy thriller, our enemy of the state with Will Smith and Gene Hackman. On the other hand, we have our story of chivalric love and of heroism. And on a hypothetical third hand, we have the escalating war narrative that unites and ultimately consumes the other two. Each of those stories, from a certain perspective, judged by its own values, works. On an abstract, conceptual level, as I said at the beginning of the lecture, it might well be argued that the storytelling in clones is more ambitious, more accomplished, than any Star Wars movie since Empire. But unlike the other movies, where the internal discord simply prevents the movie from coming together as a whole, each strand of this story actively undercuts the others, until we're left with something much less than the sum of its parts. There are three primary problems facing Attack of the Clones. Tone, Pacing, and Anakin. In the first place, then, the tonal inconsistencies threaten to tear the structure of the movie apart. There are scissions between the stories, of course. Anakin seems incredibly selfish and foolish in the context of Obi-Wan's storyline, while Obi-Wan's story seems small scale seems intricate, seems trivial in light of the war storyline, which is in turn bombastic and excessive by the standards of either of the other stories. There are, worse still, tonal problems even within the different narrative strands. High adventure and swashbuckling heroism sits uncomfortably alongside Anakin's slaughter of the Tusken raiders, just as Yoda's pinball athleticism undercuts his authority and gravitas, as leader of the jedi council perhaps the most disturbing example of this is after we have seen anakin slaughter the tusken raiders we have an extended battle sequence wherein the jedi fight in a desert environment and yes they're fighting droids and bug creatures but still the connection there is too precise too specific to be ignored then we have the pacing issue the chase sequence on Coruscant Squanders, as I said, the narrative momentum established at the beginning of the movie. Obi-Wan's battles with Jango Fett on both Kamino and in the asteroid field take less time than the chase combined, including the cutaway to Anakin's arrival on Tatooine. Ten minutes is a lot of time to spend on one thing, even in a movie as long as this one. The pace then slows again as we're cutting back and forth between Kamino and Naboo, then slows again once we get to the extended Geonosis Factory set piece, which includes R2's famously controversial jetpack maneuver. We then arrive at the climax of the movie, the arena, the Jedi battle, and finally the pitched clone battle. The problem here isn't, I would say, in the pacing in general. But rather in the moment-to-moment composition of shots and sequences. When everything feels frantic, when everything feels on the brink of flying apart, it's impossible to feel the ebb and the flow of the conflict. Just as in the pod race, just as in the chase sequence, we're reliant upon commentary from the characters to even understand what is happening. And even then, we're cutting from the massed ranks of the Jedi waging an impossible war to r2 dragging 3po's head across the sand and from there to padme who as previously mentioned i rather adore in this movie padme surviving the pitched battle despite her lack of powers or special abilities and then thirdly we have anakin who is well anakin is a disaster the best possible version of this story is still going to be compromised by anakin a character caught between two worlds but with one unavoidable destiny. There's no tension in Anakin's story because we know where it's going. Things aren't going to work out for he and Padme because we know that he becomes Vader. The worst example of this, I would argue, comes in the side trip to Tatooine and the butchering of the Tusken Raiders. We lean on that moment as though it's significant. We use it explicitly in the text as a means of foreshadowing the darkness to which Anakin will eventually succumb. Hell. Anakin foreshadows the darkness to which he will eventually succumb. But that is not a part of this story. And it exerts a destructive pressure on the story we are here to tell, which is Anakin and Padme. The worst thing about their love story, which, as I've said, is not good, is the fact that we deviate from it to this moment of personal tragedy. Even if their story worked better, even if the love story was compelling, it would still be compromised possibly fatally, by Anakin's return to Tatooine. You make this character work, this archetype, this knight work by having him double down on his heroic impulses so that we are aware but he remains unaware of the path before him. That dramatic irony, the contrast between an audience's knowledge of a text and the character's knowledge of their story, opens up narrative potential, it creates inescapable conflict, it draws us in. Making that tension explicit, removing the dramatic irony by giving Anakin awareness, is a mistake. Anakin at this point ought not to be a villain in waiting. He should be the hero we're hoping for, though burning too bright. That has always been the tragedy that awaits the chivalric hero, not the absence of heroism but the excess of heroism. And that's absent from Attack of the Clones. We should see Anakin the way that the Jedi Council, the way that Mace Windu sees Anakin, as the greatest hope. We should be on their side, not on Obi-Wan's. We're aware, of course, textually, of what is coming, but that should create that dramatic irony, not be an internal tension that causes the movie to tear itself apart. Ultimately, though, even Anakin aside, Attack of the Clones might have survived all of these problems, if not for one final consideration. Judged by its own standards, the Anakin-Padme romance works well enough, if only on a conceptual level. The Obi-Wan conspiracy thriller is actually rather evocative and delivers real tension and excitement. The war story finally brings a new level of epic grandeur to the Star Wars universe. These are not, in and of themselves, bad stories. And if they were somehow reframed in such a way as they could sit alongside each other, within the frame of this film, without stressing it, without causing fractures to arise, then we might imagine it making a decent movie. I don't know how you would do that, by the way. But if we allow for the possibility, then we might come to the conclusion that each of these stories well told, each of these stories harmoniously combined, might leave us with a good film. But even if it were a good film, it would not be good Star Wars. As I mentioned in an earlier lecture, possibly the introductory lecture of the series, I like very much the J.J. J. Abrams Star Trek movies. They're fun and they're energetic and they're well composed. They are not, though, Star Trek. Because Star Trek at a fundamental level isn't about action set pieces and love triangles and betrayal and cynicism, it is about Hope. It's about humanity's brighter path. It's about being our best selves. It is about Gene Roddenberry's vision of an enlightened humanist future. That is the essence of Star Trek, and that's all but absent from the reboot movies. So we must allow, in our critical response, for those stories to be good films, but bad Star Trek. If we apply the same kind of analysis to Attack of the Clones, what are we left with? Throughout the story in Star Wars series, we have been brought back again and again to the single overriding theme that defines each of the stories we've seen and on a grander scale, the Star Wars universe as a whole. Harmony and disharmony. Unity and disunity. From Luke taking his first steps into a larger world, to learning to hear and obey the Force, to uniting with the Ewoks to destroy the Empire, and then back to Qui-Gon trying to reconcile the wishes of the Living Force with the decline of the Republic, we've been dealing with the absence and the realization of harmony. In Attack of the Clones, though, there is no harmony. I've looked for it. I've turned these stories upside down, and I have shaken them to see if any undiscovered fragment of theme drops out, but there's nothing. The Jedi aren't advocating harmony because they've already been weakened, compromised, blinded to the guidance of the Force. If they are arguing for anything, it is rather for the perpetuation of the status quo. To the extent that Palpatine is arguing for harmony, it is the cruel and single-minded false harmony of a tyrant. And that particular theme is only one of the ways in which clones doesn't feel like Star Wars* i mentioned at the beginning of the lecture that in this movie we've abandoned monomythic structure we've also given up on the reliance on individual exceptionalism that has defined the movie so far on heroism first as embodied by luke and then as embodied by anakin our clean archetypal depictions of hero and villain are now blurred giving us a more complicated more sophisticated certainly more modern kind of narrative but that makes it less mythic less heroic and inescapably less Star Wars previously we've seen war personified in the individual as with Luke and the assault on the Death Star and the battle for or Han and Leia and the battle for Endor but here the scale is so large the action so dizzying the armies involved so deliberately explicitly bereft of individual characteristics that it simply is From the moment the Jedi reveal themselves on Geonosis, we are no longer interested in characters. We are interested at best in factions, in armies, in forces. The individual stories are de-emphasized in a way that they weren't in the original trilogy, that they weren't in The Phantom Menace, and that they won't be, to look ahead, in Revenge of the Sith. So the biggest problem with Attack of the Clones, for me, is that it takes all the checkboxes we associate with a Star Wars movie while fundamentally missing the point. Partly, that's inescapable. This is the dark middle chapter, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Empire, similarly, struggled to articulate a perspective on the questions and the challenges of harmony. But Empire, ironically, also gives us a template on how to do this story well. Have your characters fail. Have them be overwhelmed through no fault of their own. Han and Leia, for example. Or better yet, have them fail because they don't listen to the need for restraint and the need for harmony, just like Luke. Though our heroes are ultimately challenged in Attack of the Clones, they don't really fail. Obi-Wan achieves his goals, Padme and Anakin achieve theirs as much as we might wish that they hadn't, and the war that was always inevitable finally arrives. Whereas Han and Leia fail to escape, Londo fails to be as strong as he should be, Luke fails first in his training and then fails again in his confrontation with Vader. Here, what little failure we get was either inevitable or immediately undone. Consider the transitory significance of Anakin losing his hand. That should be one of the most important moments in all of Star Wars. Yet we breeze right past it content to check the box so as i said at the beginning of the lecture this is not an uncomplicated movie and certainly not the complete disaster it's often regarded as padme is a legitimately great character obi-wan is absolutely and consistently engaging the core plot is cohesive and appropriately grand in scale and it's complemented by innumerable tiny flourishes that speak to character or enrich our understanding of the world but ultimately you cannot tell these stories in this way making the choices that you are making all at the same time what we're left with is a mess a movie which gestures towards star wars but which has precious little of substance to say and the space that is left too often is filled by Dex's diner, by dueling Yoda, by Mace Windu's purple lightsaber, by three PO's head on a droid's body, and by Anakin surfing on the back of a shock on Naboo, losing his hand and marrying Padme in secret as we cut to credits. Attack of the Clones is ambitious. It is complicated. It is far and away the most mature and modern of the Star Wars stories. But ultimately, it's just not good Star Wars. We will gather together on Tuesday evening to live tweet the movie using the hashtag Starwonks. That's 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday the 10th of November, and I'll be back next week to talk about the last movie in the prequel trilogy, the one that is usually regarded as the best of the three, Revenge of the Sith. Guys, I would love to hear your thoughts about Attack of the Clones, so if you have comments and observations you'd like to make if you would like to agree with or take issue with my assessment of this movie then please get in touch you can email me directly alistair at storywonk.com that is a-l-a-s-t-a-i-r at storywonk.com or better yet by stopping by the storywonk forum that is forum.storywonk.com where we can discuss all the star wars that there is to discuss Guys, thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for your patience. I will see you on Tuesday night. And I will be back on Friday with more. Until then, may the force be with you.